Welcome to Cabeza de Vaca. Episode 22, Crossing the Divide. I'm Brandon Seal. Throughout the fall of 1535, the Native American spiritual movement, headed or at least figureheaded by Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, Dorantes, and Esteban, stormed its way across northern Coahuila. Their cures never failed them, culminating in the extraction in the previous episode of an arrowhead by Cabeza de Vaca from the beating heart of an ailing Indian. Their compensation, too, increased with their fame. Whereas before, a basket of roasted prickly pears and a piece of dried venison seemed like a fortune, now they were being gifted beads, minerals, and even worked copper rattles. And as word of these four expeditionaries spread like a prairie fire, it drew in new recruits from miles around until their party numbered now three or four thousand souls. But one day, on the south side of the Rio Grande, just across from Big Bend National Park, it almost fell apart. The four expeditionaries' rise had been so meteoric. Just a year ago, they had been starving slaves, eking out a living in South Texas. And the source of their newfound power was so mysterious that it finally just overwhelmed them. The four broke away from their camp of thousands and went off to brood in the brush by themselves, leaving their followers trembling at what would happen now that their medicine men had withdrawn from them. And sure enough, 300 of the followers promptly fell sick. Then, eight died. Others seemed likely to follow. The camp descended into chaos, with children screaming and women wailing at the impending death of their loved ones. Incidentally, this all happens just at the moment in Cabeza de Vaca's narrative when he and his companions seem to be further from God than ever. What I mean by this is that by my rough Kindle count, Cabeza de Vaca mentions God 61 times during the course of his entire 38-chapter narrative. Yet from chapter 23, when he and his companions' latest run as medicine men really took off, until chapter 30 here, Cabeza de Vaca invokes God only once, and then only in passing. It's a glaring omission, and I don't think it's a coincidence. The four expeditionaries' withdrawal from their community of followers is representative of their withdrawal from God at this juncture. And it takes seeing their followers falling sick and dying to show the expeditionaries this. Because inasmuch as the episode of the expeditionaries withdrawing from their community of followers marked the pinnacle of their power as medicine men, by alienating themselves from the community that was protecting them and carrying them across the continent, they found themselves to be just as vulnerable as they had ever been. And the suffering that the four expeditionaries witnessed amongst their followers at this point, quote, caused us more pain than we could bear, end quote. Realizing that they were powerless on their own and realizing that it was their only recourse, the expeditionaries turned back to God for the first time in seven chapters. Quote, we begged God to fix things, end quote. And fortunately for them, he did. Not only did the, quote, sick begin to get well, end quote, but also many of their followers voluntarily decided to go back to their homes, reducing the strain on the camp and on the barren countryside. Others amongst their followers 
who had previously been opposed to marching deeper into the lands of their traditional enemies, suddenly found the courage to move forward. A new sense of harmony and purpose animated the band when they took up the march again. And just a few days further on, they came to the intersection of the Rio Conchos and the Rio Grande, the site of one of the largest communities in North America at this time. In 1535, this Junta de los Rios supported a population of perhaps 10,000 people, which is pretty impressive when you consider that the population today of Ojinaga Presidio at the same location is only about 30,000. And both the four expeditionaries and their many followers from the hunter-gatherer bands of northern Mexico were blown away by what they saw there. The natives at the Junta de los Rio Concho and the Rio Grande lived in fixed houses made from adobe bricks plastered inside and out with red, yellow, black, and white pigments, rising multiple stories into the air, perhaps like the Pueblo ruins near modern-day Salinas, New Mexico. The peoples living here traded as far east as Louisiana, and all up and down the Rio Grande, the Rio Conchos, the Pecos River, and down into Mexico. Though their diet centered around the beans and squash that they raised, their economy centered on the buffalo. In addition to the meat, which Cabeza de Vaca describes as tastier than traditional beef, these people use these animals to make everything, from, quote, shoes to shields, end quote. They would travel hundreds of miles and spend months out of every year hunting and processing these animals. So central was the buffalo to these people's lives that the four expeditionaries took to calling them the people of the cows. Cabeza de Vaca describes the people of the cows as, quote, the people with the best bodies that we saw and the most liveliness and capacity, and they best understood and responded to us when we asked them questions. And I don't think there's any mystery why this should be. The people of the cows were living a lifestyle more similar to that of the Castilians than any other Native Americans that they had met yet in North America. The people of the cows had agriculture, they had trade, and they had urban centers. They probably had some form of hierarchical social structure, though we don't get a lot of clues to this, but there are hints in Cabeza de Vaca that things are tamer, more domesticated amongst the people of the cows. Compare also the wild Bacchanalian mitotes that we've seen amongst the Coahuiltecan hunter-gatherers with this description of a later traveler of a people of the cows party. Quote, They made music by beating their hands while sitting around a big fire. They sing, and in time, with the singing, they dance a few rising from one side and others from the opposite, performing their dances two, four, and eight at a time, end quote. I'm not saying that square dancing is the sign of an advanced civilization, but it certainly would have been more relatable to these four expeditionaries who came to genuinely admire the, quote, ingenios e industrias, end quote, of the people of the cows. Later Spaniards would share their opinion, and the people of the cows whom Spaniards would later call the Humanos, were among the first targets of new Spanish missionaries. Other Native Americans noticed too. When the Apaches descended from the Great Plains a hundred years later, they incorporated many of the people of the cows into their tribes and seem also to have adopted their buffalo-centered lifestyle supplemented by seasonal agriculture. And yet even amongst these more quote-unquote advanced people of the cows, the four expeditionaries' reputations preceded them. 
Their existing followers made sure to go through their usual routine of hyping up the medicine men and explaining to the people of the cows what was expected of them. But this time, there was no ritual marauding or ransacking. It seems like it may not have been necessary. The people of the cows were so awed by the four medicine men and the social movement behind them that they just tidily piled up all their belongings in the center of their houses and waited meekly with their hair pulled down over their eyes for the medicine men to come see them. And yet the four expeditionaries weren't seduced by the relative sophistication of the people of the cows. Indeed, their brief time here at the Junta de los Rios only confirmed for them that they needed to keep moving. Amongst the people of the cows, the expeditionaries had seen ornamental tropical feathers, suggesting that they had access to trade routes that reached into southern Mexico, where the expeditionaries knew Castilians to be. And though the people of the cows had some metal goods, they didn't seem to possess the knowledge of working metal themselves, which meant that Durantes' copper rattle must have come from further along as well. And lastly, the expeditionaries realized that the people of the cows didn't actually raise corn due to a prolonged drought they were enduring, which meant that the two women who had first drawn the expeditionaries up into these mountains must have obtained their corn from somewhere else too. The people of the cows could read the disappointment in the expeditionaries' eyes, but encouraged them that they would find feathers, copper, and corn if only they continued their journey westward toward, quote, where the sun set, end quote. And so after just a few days' rest, the expeditionaries set out northwest once again, this time along the north bank of the Rio Grande. For 17 days, Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, Durantes, Esteban, and an uncertain number of their hardiest followers marched up along the north bank of the Rio Grande toward modern-day El Paso. They had been warned that the Camino al Maíz, the road to the corn, would be barren, and true to form, all they had to eat along these 17 days was, quote, a handful of deer fat, end quote. But the four expeditionaries had grown accustomed to hardship and to traveling at a blistering pace. In the last three months, they and their party had covered maybe 750 miles. Accounting for a few days' rest here and there, their party was covering maybe 10 miles a day through some of the most barren country on the continent. And in a marked change from how the expeditionaries had fared in their first few years in the New World, now their toughness and endurance was the object of admiration amongst the natives. Quote, we walked all day without eating until nightfall. Our companions were shocked at how little we ate. Yet we never felt tired. And the truth was that we were so used to laboring like this that we didn't even feel it. End quote. At the end of those 17 days, the four expeditionaries and their followers crossed back over the Rio Grande for the third time in about as many months. The first time, recall, had been back near Lake Falcón in the summer, and the second time near Boquillas, Coahuila, in the previous episode. This time, the traveling band crossed from the north bank to the south, and then turned ever so slightly southwest. It was late fall of 1535, but still warm enough that communities up ahead might still be harvesting corn. This idea drove the expeditionaries forward, motivating them even as the deer tallow began to run out and they were reduced to eating powdered grass. They followed the sunset for 17 more hungry days, now into the Sierra Madre Occidental, across the Continental Divide, and down into modern-day Sonora. At the end of this second 17 days, 
And it kind of feels like 17 must be symbolic for something, but I can't quite figure out what it is. After the end of this second 17 days, the four expeditionaries and their followers came upon another village with permanent houses, somewhere, we think, in the Yaki River Valley. Cabeza de Vaca doesn't give us as many details about the natives of the Rio Yaqui as he did about the people of the cows, but he does take it as a sign of the advancement of the Rio Yaqui civilization that their women went about fully clothed. And at least in Cabeza de Vaca's narrative, there's a direct correlation between how advanced the society is and how well covered up its people are. This village was also clearly part of a well-established trade network, and the villagers brought to the expeditionaries material objects of some real value, even by European standards. Coral beads, turquoise, and bolts of cotton, quote, finer than that of New Spain, end quote, which the expeditionaries dutifully distributed to their followers, as had been their practice now for almost a year. But once again, Durantes was singled out for a truly special gift. Five emeralds, napped into the shape of arrowheads, Neither Cabeza de Vaca nor the joint report give us any more context for this gift. But recall from episode 20 that the number 5 is associated with perfection in many Uto-Aztecan cultures. And we are, by the way, solidly and undisputably now amongst Uto-Aztecan tribes by this point. You should also know that these Uto-Aztecans worshipped a god who came from the east, like the expeditionaries, who then went to the underworld, like Cabeza de Vaca during his five days alone in the monte back in episode 15, to recover the emerald bones of his ancestors, like the emeralds that they had just given Durantes? Once again, it feels like the symbolism is too on point to be accidental. And some of you listeners may even recognize the name of this god. It was Quetzalcoatl, the so-called feathered serpent god, who was actually worshipped in various forms throughout pre-Columbian Mexico. But here's something you probably didn't know about Quetzalcoatl. His twin was Xolotl the dog deity underworld guide that we mentioned back in episode 20, because it sounds like that may have been what some of the natives were calling Cabeza de Vaca and his companions. And wait, there's more. Do you know what symbol was frequently associated with Quetzalcoatl, according to scholar Dorothy Holzer? Rattles, like the copper rattle given to Durantes back in Coahuila. Clearly, the emerald arrowheads and the copper rattle and all of these other gifts aren't just random. These are forms of tribute, rich with symbolism, that the Native Americans of the region are offering to the four expeditionaries. Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, Durantes, and Esteban must have realized this. Though Cabeza de Vaca doesn't hit this on the nose in his account, I think he was aware of what was going on, because he fills his account with so many details and side narratives which are rich with meaning in the Native American tradition, even as they would have seemed like non-sequiturs to a European reader. But knowing what we know from the archaeological record and from other accounts, it sure seems like the natives of this region are confirming the expeditionaries' fluency with their own faith tradition. That the expeditionaries are in fact living out a central story from the Native American faith tradition. Which is neat too when you think about it, because what it means is that inasmuch as the expeditionaries' journey has validated the expeditionaries' own faith, as we've talked about in some of the earlier episodes, what we're seeing in these most recent episodes is that it also serves to validate the faith of the natives amongst whom they were traveling. For three days, the expeditionaries stayed with the villagers on the Rio Yaqui. Each sunrise and sunset, the villagers passed their hands over the expeditionaries' bodies. Then they would go about shouting and raising their hands to the sky, singing, thanking them for coming, quote, del cielo, from the sky, 
or from heaven. The Spanish doesn't distinguish. Yet these expeditionaries hadn't come from the sky. They had come from Castile. And what these Castilians sought was corn. And so the expeditionaries peppered these Indians of the Yaqui Valley with questions about where they could find more corn. Seeing how obsessed the expeditionaries were with corn, Indian mothers began placing kernels of it in their babies' hands to better win the favor of these odd-looking medicine men. And when at last, the expeditionaries finally found corn being cultivated in a subsequent village along the Rio Yaqui, quote, This was the thing in the world that made us happiest, and for this we gave infinite thanks to our Lord, end quote. Because more so than representing the kind of advanced societies that Castilians were supposed to conquer, I think that by this point in the expeditionary's voyage, corn had come to represent home. Yes, finding large, prosperous corn-raising societies fulfilled the expeditionary's apostolic mission for sure, but it also increased the likelihood of bringing them into contact with the corn-raising societies of central Mexico, which they knew their countrymen now ruled as overlords. Interestingly, throughout his entire account, Cabeza de Vaca never talks about longing for home, about missing his wife or mourning the experience he was missing, or the fact that he was never going to have a chance to raise children and pass on his family name of which he was so proud. And this is just one of the many reminders to me of how the people of this time were so different from us. No modern author can write about this story without trying to imagine how these expeditionaries dealt with homesickness, and yet the expeditionaries themselves never talk about it. My theory so far has been that by refusing to dwell on thoughts of home, it allowed the expeditionaries to better cope with the obvious hardship they were facing every day, much like some other prisoners of war counts that we've discussed. But every time that Cabeza de Vaca talks about corn, a part of his old conquistador energy returns. And so I've come to believe that corn is maybe Cabeza de Vaca and his companions' code word for home. Or at least, it serves as a reminder for them of their past lives and what they were striving to return to. As if on cue, on the third day of the expeditionary's stay at that village on the Rio Yaqui, an Indian came to see them from further down the river, near where it empties into the Pacific. Alonso Castillo, the most pious and, quote, most esteemed, end quote, of the four expeditionaries, noticed that this Indian was wearing a peculiar piece of jewelry around his neck. Quote, there, Castillo saw an Indian of this village with a piece of sword belt and a horseshoe nail hung from his neck like a jewel, end quote. The sword belt and the horseshoe nail could only mean one thing. Castilians were nearby. Indeed, the last time that Cabeza de Vaca had seen such an artifact was around the neck of an Indian on Galveston Island, which had been the clue, actually, that had reunited him with Castillo, Dorantes, and Esteban. Where did you get this? The expeditionaries asked the Indian. Del cielo, from the sky, is what the Indian answered. Yeah, but where did it fall from the sky? The expeditionaries asked again. Quote, he responded that some men with beards like ours had come from the sky and arrived at that same river we were on now with horses and lances and swords, end quote. It was by now, mas or minus, Christmas of 1535. And the expeditionaries had just been presented with the greatest gift they could have ever asked for. A connection after more than seven years of separation with their old countrymen. 
and they received one more gift that Christmas season from the people of the village on the Rio Yaqui. 600 deer hearts. And if we're being precise, it was once again to Durante specifically to whom the natives presented this gift. And I should mention here that Dennis Herrick, a biographer of Esteban, theorizes that all these special gifts that keep going to Durantes may actually have been intended for Esteban, who according to Cabeza de Vaca, quote, was always the one who spoke to the natives, end quote. But since Esteban was technically Durantes' slave, he then had to render all of these gifts up unto his master, and so they appear in Cabeza de Vaca's account as gifts to Durantes. It's an interesting theory for sure. Either way, the gift of the 600 deer hearts led the expeditionaries to name the village on the Rio Yaqui Corazones. Note that this was the first time that the expeditionaries had bothered to name a place since being shipwrecked on the so-called Island of Ill Fate more than seven years ago. And Cabeza de Vaca drops in some other salient literary bookends in his narrative around this point. We've already mentioned how the copper rattle that Durantes had been given back in Coahuila recalls the golden rattle that the Narvaez expeditionaries had found when they first set foot in Florida. Just as the belt buckle around the neck of the Indian here on the Rio Yaqui recalls the trinket around the neck on the Indian on Galveston Island that had first reunited Cabeza de Vaca with Castillo Durantes and Esteban. Additionally, I can't help but notice that 600 is also the number of souls who had sailed away from the Iberian Peninsula in the Narvaez expedition more than eight years ago now on five ships, no less, later reduced to five rafts, kind of like the five emeralds that Durantes had just been gifted. Maybe these were just literary flourishes inserted by Cabeza de Vaca, but just as likely, I think, these parallels were the kinds of things that the deeply religious expeditionaries would have interpreted as divine confirmation that they were once again aligned with God's plan. There's no such thing as coincidence in the worldview of the expeditionaries, or for that matter, in the worldview of the Native Americans amongst whom they were ministering. And so after resting for a week or two in the villages along the Rio Yaqui, sometime around the Feast of the Epiphany, 1536, the expeditionaries took up their march west again, heading, quote, to where the sun set, end quote. And they were clear now about their goal. It wasn't corn they were after. They were going after Castilians. In their satchels, they carried with them the five emerald arrowheads and the 600 deer hearts. And behind the four expeditionaries, Cabeza de Vaca tells us, marched the body of their followers, numbering precisely now 600. Like I said, that's too on point to be a coincidence. On the next episode of Cabeza de Vaca. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out the webpage associated with this episode on therevardreport.com, home of nonprofit journalism for a better San Antonio. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco, sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. The music for this series is entitled Apache, was composed by Kevin Graham, and is available on Soundstripe. A special thanks to Father David Garcia, Dr. Frank De La Teja with the Texas State Historical Association, to Steve Davis, curator of the Whitliffe Collections at Texas State University to Professor Andres Resendez at the University of California, Davis, to Dr. Carolyn Boyd with the Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center and also Texas State, and to David Dunham with Texas Monthly for all their support and suggestions. You'll hear more about them throughout the season. And for more information about us and our other projects, you can check out our website at www.brandonseal.com. <laughs>